Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. It's November 3rd. The Fed keeps moving their dot plots higher. Stocks and bonds keep heading lower and earnings season is providing more questions than answers. I'm Rob Schiffman, and welcome to this month's Bloomberg Intelligence Credit Chat podcast. With us to provide the answers to some of BI's most asked questions are a slew of our global financial all-star analysts, including our European credit research chief in Cheslin, David Havens, our private credit and all things non-bank financial guru, and Matt Goitner, who has never met an industrial credit he couldn't model. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you so much for uh, coming to today's podcast. Why don't we start off with Aiden? How are you today, Aiden? Good. Thank you, Rob. How are you doing? Oh, never better. Never better. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about hybrids. I mean, I've seen you and your team um, publish uh, a lot of stuff on hybrids recently, and it's sort of blown up the terminal. It's just gotten tons and tons of clicks. Maybe you could just do me a favor and, and, and start off for um, the layman like me, and just give us a, a quick understanding of exactly what a hybrid is, you know, how it's different from a, a straightforward bond, um, and then get into a little bit of the details of why we're seeing such massive uh, underperformance and, and what those catalysts are that, that that's driving performance. Yep, sure. So um, while most companies that issue hybrid bonds are attracted by the equity credit they get from the ratings companies, um, these bonds tend to get 50% equity treatment um, from the rating agencies when you're looking at leverage ratios. Um, the bonds are senior only to equity, so super subordinated. Um, they typically have uh, mechanisms for uh, optional deferral or coupons um, if the company's not paying any money to shareholders by way of dividends or buybacks. Um, they tend to be extremely long duration or perpetual um, with call dates, um, five to 12 years uh, forward uh, and coupon steps if, if call dates aren't met at certain thresholds. Um, so that's the sort of general structure of them. Well, listen, back, at, back in my heyday of covering TMT, I know a couple of, of U.S. names had issued hybrids, but it, it's not really a, 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 a big U.S. market, is it? Is it predominantly European or am I just missing the boat on that? Um, predominantly, yes, there are some U.S. issuers um, that uh, that have dabbled in it, and some Asian issuers as well. Um, but the U.S. the European market is now um, over 100 issuers strong. Wow, gotcha. Um, yeah, so it's and it's really grown, particularly in the last five or six years when issuance really exploded. So what's been happening? So these hybrids have really been underperforming. What's going on? Yeah, so it's always been a high beta um, seg segment of the market. Um, but I think, uh, so as the market has widened, obviously the, these bonds have underperformed, but there's been two additional drivers, I would say, pushing things. Firstly is the fact that obviously I think recovery, assume recovery like rates are very, very low. So in a, um, an environment where we're expecting higher default rates, um, these, uh, these securities have come under additional pressure. Uh, and the second thing is um, the market has started to speculate with rates going up that um, some issuers might not uh, call the hybrid bonds at the first opportunity um, because that would be uneconomic, similar to how obviously we saw uh, back in the days of the financial crisis, can, um, financial companies start to to, to skip um, call dates on their bonds. 
Um, so far, the sector has been very good on calling bonds on time. There's only been a few uh, very rare exceptions where companies haven't called bonds at the first opportunity. But I think the speculation that that, that might start to happen has, has caused some jitters across the hybrid market. The new issuance market, though, has been has been slowed so much. When when they do call these bonds, how are they refinancing them? So the, the few that we've had this year have been a real mixture. So some have been refinanced in the hybrid market, just at higher rates. Um, and that's particularly been the higher rated ones where that's happened. Uh, we've had some companies where their credit quality has improved. They no longer have the necessity for those, those hybrid bonds to maintain their credit ratings. There have been one or two that have reduced the amount of hybrid they have outstanding and replaced them either with senior bonds or with outstanding cash. Okay. And so how much have these names been hurt? I mean, where are yields these days? Are, are these names trading like high yield debt in Europe? Um, or are they still seen as you know quasi sort of safe havens? Um, they're seen worse than high yield almost now. <laughs> okay. um, so the, I mean, they had rallied from um, kind of, uh, so let's take a step back. They're now trading at 10%. Um, for that's the entire universe, Euro, Euro corporate hybrid is, is trading at just over 10%. Is there a separate index for people to be able to follow that, or do you just aggregate that data um, on a bespoke basis? We aggregate it. I think there are um, one or two third-party indices around, but we tend to aggregate it. We use the SSDH function. Um, you can pull out um, hybrid bonds um, directly from there. Highlighting the power of the terminal. Well done. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so we've we've gone from these bonds trading in line with high-quality senior double Bs um, to trading wider than the senior high-yield index. So if you take the European High Yield Index and you just strip out just the senior bonds, so get rid of all the sub-debt, um, average yield on that index is 7.6%, and hybrids are now trading at 10.1%. Wow. They were trading through easily through the high yield senior bonds and trading more in line with high quality double Bs um, a year ago. Okay. Um, so it's been a big underperformance. So let's get to what uh, I think people probably really care about then is like what's your medium, you know, near to intermediate term outlook, and are there names that stand out uh, from the upside or downside that uh, you're, you're, you're particularly focused on? Yeah, so um, we think that the, the widening in the market as a whole is overdone. We think there will be companies that miss um, call dates, uh, and that, that will be a shock to the market, but we think that, that that's, um, the fear of that is overdone when you look at where the whole index trades. Um, we think most of those shocks uh, or those missed calls will probably happen in the real estate sector, potentially in one or two of the, the more distressed utility energy type type names. Um, but we think that the big issuers, like the Telefonicas and Volkswagens of the world, um, just need this market and they need to keep the investors on side. Um, and we think, so particularly if you're looking at the higher rated names in the sector. So these bonds will always two notches below the senior rating. So anything triple B plus and above um, that has an investment grade hybrid bond, we think um, you've got a much better um, outlook. Um, and then we think that the very big issuers that, that need to re or are still relying on this market um, are the ones where um, you can potentially see um, some more stability um, within my coverage universe, which is TMT, um, you know, I think names like um, British Telecom, 
uh, trade very wide to their peer group at the moment. Um, I think SES, obviously the satellite sector has been under pressure, but S and we haven't been big, big fans of the satellite sector. But when I look at the very, the front end of that curve, there's um, SES has a, a bond um, with its first school date in the first quarter of 2024, which is when they received the, the phase two C-band proceeds, and they're going to be extremely liquid around that point. So, so that bond trading wide to its peers probably sticks out a little bit to us. Um, so those would be a couple of the, the examples of where we, we see value. Great. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm sure you're going to be writing a ton more, and I know the demand um, is big here, and there's probably going to be pretty volatile swing. So, you know, if, if people are not tracking what Aiden and his team are writing on, uh, make sure you get on his uh, alert list uh, as soon as possible. Thank you, Aiden. Uh, let's move to another topic where I, it seems like, um, you know, it's just insatiable demand uh, for research on the world of private private credit and, and bringing David Havens. Hello, David. Hello, Robert. So, Great to hear the dulcet tones of your moderator voice. I wish if I only had uh, your voice and looks, I, I can only imagine how successful I could be on the terminal. Um, well, let's talk about credit. So listen, as I mentioned before, new issuances down dramatically. You know, people are starting to talk about private credit filling the gap uh, in terms of providing massive amounts of credit uh, where it just doesn't exist anymore. What, what exactly has changed in the world of private credit over the last few years? How big are some of these companies getting? Um, and then we can get into some of the impacts of rising rates and, and things like that. But just give us a little bit of a broad overview of why the sector and, 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 and interest has exploded so much um, in such a short period of time. Yeah, well, I, I think that what's gone on is, is it's not what's happened over the past couple of years. It's it's what happened during the financial crisis and the and the aftermath of the financial crisis with uh, with Dodd Frank, Basel III, Basel IV, uh, enhanced banking regulations. Um, and what what ended up happening is uh, that regulations pushed a lot of traditional uh, corporate and industrial uh, lending out of banks and into the uh, into the shadow banking sector which uh, created opportunities for uh, for uh, private lenders to step in and do what banks traditionally did and and into that breach came you know a variety of specialty firms um, and then we've seen uh, traditional private equity firms which have transitioned into alternative asset management firms like black Blackstone, uh, KKR, and others uh, step in and, and really take it to a to another degree. And the size of some of these the assets that you're accumulating are astronomical. Did you did you publish something the other day that some someone was was on their way to a trillion dollars in assets? <laughs> yeah, that's that's not all private, uh, not all private credit. But if you, if you focus specifically on private credit, um, we've seen some of the Blackstone entities uh, uh, grow you know, from basically nothing to, to $40 billion in the case of, uh, of, uh, of Blackstone private credit over a, a, a very short period of time, less than, less than two or three years. Uh, the overall size of the private credit market is estimated to be about $1.2 trillion now. And uh, that market uh, over the next five years is expected to double and even possibly triple. Now, what's going on right now in the economy and, and rates is, is obviously going to cause people to really, you know, tap the brakes and, and uh, you know, there will be probably some 
unavoidable collisions that'll that'll occur in the not too distant future in private credit. But it's a market that's got legs and, and momentum and will will be around for a long time. One of the things you've written about, um, and I think it's 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 really caught on, is how much wider some of these private credit subsidiaries and BDCs trade than the parents of the same name. Um, why exactly is that? Why are people not recognizing uh, the relationships between parents and subs? And, and, and over time, what compresses the differential in spreads? Yeah, so so I think that's a great question. I, I that, that's something that I think about a lot, and I, I think that investors are thinking about. I, I think they're a little bit. Uh, there's some trepidation in in sort of stepping into the market right now, just because of sort of the macro backdrop. But if you look at, you know, some of the largest, most sophisticated uh, alternative asset managers out there, again, Blackstone, um, Blue Owl, KKR, uh, Aries, uh, they all have uh, eponymous. Uh, associated BDCs, business development companies, that they basically sponsor and advise. They're not subsidiaries. Um, They're separately owned companies, but they share management, they share branding, uh, they share reputation. uh, And yet you see the spreads of these uh, business development companies in many cases double what the spreads are of sort of the, uh, the, the mothership alternative asset managers. And uh, it, it just seems very unlikely to me that even if the BDCs came under greater pressure because of the, you know, sort of the economy turning south, um, I think that the, the alternative asset managers would step in and provide some support um, to those business development companies, largely because they share the brand. Um, and in the case of Black uh, Stone, for example, um, Blackstone is making an enormous push into uh, into private wealth management, and at the vanguard, at the tip of that spear, is uh, some of the BDCs that Blackstone uh, sponsors, where they have their name stamped on it. So there's a reputation issue. So are there are there one or two that stand out in particular um, that look too wide, or you think um, there's better Relval than others. So I, I think the one that really stands out in my mind is the uh, the the uh, spread differential between Mothership Blackstone and Blackstone Private Credit. That's B Cred is the uh, the bond ticker on that one, and uh, it, it's it's gotten to be a very it's actually the largest business development company now. And one of the things that that you know I I, I think I think the market is missing is the way that these BDCs are integrated into the mothership. So like I said, reputation is a big issue. Um, moving into, into new client markets like private wealth is a big issue. But it's also the relationship extends beyond that because uh, the sponsors that the that the alternative asset managers are working with, there's an entire ecosystem of private equity and funding private equity that gets done through the business development companies. So they've become a pretty important linchpin for sort of the overall uh, activities of the uh, of the alternative asset managers. Gotcha. And so I, I think it really it really links them closely together, and I think the spreads eventually will reflect that. Awesome, very cool stuff. Uh, thank you. Um, we'll move to our, our final and uh, I think a really, really interesting topic, especially as we're heading into the end of the year and, and talk about rate moves. 
Uh, Matt Goitner, welcome, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I, I want to talk a bunch about pensions, and we're going to use uh, Boeing as an example today, um, because I think that um, you know it's a it's a misunderstood topic, and especially with such a volatile equity and uh, and uh, uh, rate markets, um, you know, there's going to be huge moves in in pension liabilities and and assets that I think people might not be aware of. Um, I tend to know a significant amount about Boeing to get started with because I watched a documentary on um, on the Max. So, <laughs> you know, excuse me if I sound a little bit too uh, industry intelligent, but maybe just want to start off with uh, quickly just your views um, before we get to pensions, uh, your views on Boeing, um, you know, what the credit looks like today. Um, you, you think they can be an outperformer, underperformer uh, next year? Yeah, no, I... I, I... I think um, they can outperform next year, and I think that uh, they have quite a few levers available to them to uh, to do so. So there's about a 35 basis point spread gap on average across their curve that I think could sort of shrink over the intermediate term, and that's going to really hinge on their ability to deliver 737 and 787. So their capital structure solution is is pretty simple and straightforward. You deliver your planes generate cash and you turn around and you pay your debt. Um, they have about $5 billion in maturities over the next couple of years, so the level of cash flow that they should be able to generate this year and next and into 2024 should give them ample liquidity to sort of take the excess, excess cash and, and sort of accelerate uh, deleveraging in line with where uh, Raiders um, expect them to be for those uh, triple B minus and uh, BAA2 uh, ratings. Okay, so credits in 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 decent shape. Now let, let's move a little bit to this pension issue because it's something that I really don't understand. You know, most of the names that that I cover in technology just don't have um, significant pension issues. Um, but what I've seen you write is that Boeing has one of the most underfunded pensions in the S and P 500. Um, you know, what are the puts and takes that that go go into that? Um, and where do you see that number uh, at the end of the year in terms of underfunded? Yeah, no, that's it's a question I've gotten quite a bit on. So, you know, I wanted to take a look to see, you know, how the the rip and rates higher we could impact pension liabilities across my space, and more specifically for some of the higher profile names with my coverage. So, Boeing being one of them. Um, it's no secret that performance across asset classes, whether it be equities, fixed income, um, performance has been pretty pretty poor and in all likelihood it's going to be uh, pretty negatively impacting pension assets, uh, which total about $68 billion for Boeing at year end. So what I did was look at and sort of deconstruct the asset makeup to get a sense of how far those assets could fall. They snapped the line today. Um, and what I find is the assets could be hit towards 20%. Um, so the the offset to that that negative impact would be uh, the surge in rates that we've seen, which we think can offer them a, a lever to significantly cut pension liabilities by raising the discount rate um, they use to measure those liabilities, which we think can shrink rate-adjusted debt by over 10%. Um, and what I think that does is is it just adds more headroom within their IG rating profile. Um, it could be a catalyst for, for that 35 basis point um, spread gap that I spoke about earlier um, to sort of shrink over the intermediate term. And so if the discount rate is such a big driver, how do we, how do people figure out how high they can move that up to give them the most amount of flexibility? Is, is that a defined rate somewhere or do they have the flexibility to set it themselves? 
Uh, it's a combination of both, but but typically the, the market practitioners will look at the Moody's double um, A index, which is a measure they can use to help set discount rates. And and we've seen the yield on that rise over 260 basis points this year. And so that could be the the lever they use to sort of shrink the uh, pension liability. And that's despite the the drop in assets that I mentioned. Um, and what I come up with is a benefit somewhere in the range of over $20 billion. Um, and that's because each 25 basis point increase in their discount rate, it's going to cut the pension obligations by a little over $2 billion. Um, so it's really that 260 times times two. Um, and so this would be an offset to the, to the drop in assets, which would significantly narrow their liabilities, which are among the top 10 largest in the S&P 500. And that's in comparison to guys like GE, Exxon, Lockheed, you know, even UPS or, or Raytheon. Um, and that's in addition to the 40% improvement that we saw in the position last year. So it's important to account for, for pension underfunding because the Raiders include the liabilities in their debt calculations. S&P includes the tax-affected uh, underfunded pension as well as OPEB in their adjusted debt levels, um, as well as a little bit of cost recovery depending on the mix of, of fixed versus cost uh, defense contracts while netting um, cash on the balance sheet. You know, in in for a couple of the companies that I, that I that I had pension issues with, say Xerox, they used to tell us um, how much pension contribution they had to make during the year and the impact on cash. So oftentimes it wasn't so much about how underfunded it was, but it was the requirements to uh, top off their funding. Um, do, do these sort of moves in the discount rate affect cash flows at all, or is is it uh, really just more of an accounting treatment? It's a combination of both, but with Boeing, it's a little different because they're not contributing any cash to it. So they actually kind of, um, everybody talks at length about them potentially issuing equity, which as we heard from their investor day yesterday, there's no plans to do that. But they actually kind of did backdoor um, equity issuance a couple of years ago when they effectively issued stock to help uh, fund their uh, pension obligations. Um, so from their perspective, the cash flow is sort of taken care of, um, and that's kind of Fitch's view. So Moody's and S&P include the liabilities in their debt, whereas Fitch views it more, like you said, as a cash flow item, and they don't see that being an issue on a go-forward basis. But yeah. as far as – oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, it's, it, 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 it seems like it's, it's less of a credit issue then if you're not so much worried about them having to put in cash. So do, do you get to – a do you get to a point where if they raise the discount rate too high, the management is viewed as being too aggressive in order just to uh, reduce the underfunded amount to try to eliminate the impact of, or the potential impact of, of, of issuing equity? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, that's a good point. But when I sort of zoom out and look at, at, at their discount rate and compare it to the S&P 500, um, I don't see the 2.8% rate assumption they have is overly aggressive, and that's a reflection of the, the median for constituents within the index at about 2.7%. Um, so their discount rate largely approximates the, the yield on the Moody's AA index okay. in 2020 and 2021, so I don't think that that's going to hinder their ability to sort of meaningfully raise the, the discount rate. Um, and even on our, our mid-year aerospace outlook, we had some of S&P's industrial analysts on and they had sort of shared an anecdote from one of the management teams under their coverage universe 
that uh, despite all the, the poor asset returns that we're seeing, the, the potential benefit around discount rate assumptions was still running ahead of, of those those poor asset returns and still expected to be a, a net positive for uh, the, the pension position for the for the year. Okay, and just one last thing, since you're our uh, BI credit pension guru, um, you know, this here was a little bit of a focus on Boeing, but are, are there other names that have big underfunded pensions that people need to be wary of? Um, or is this just a little bit more of a interesting sort of nerdy credit topic that um, doesn't really impact trading? No, it's definitely a nerdy topic for sure. <laughs> That's where we're going <laughs> at. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's 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 specific to to Boeing and and I guess the other uh, company under coverage would be UPS. They also have um, a large underfunded pension position, but they were able to take care of a large slug of that thanks to uh, ARPA uh, being passed. And I think they're going to also experience a net benefit um, this year too, based on raising their, their discount rate, which I think is going to pull forward. A, a very what I would characterize as a very conservative um, leverage target of of mid one time. So they're going to pull that forward probably by a year, um, and could could definitely indicate some potential positive rating activity at least as I see it, uh, given given how how well they've sort of performed versus uh, versus peers. Awesome. Um, we have one of our other uh, guests who want to pop back into this topic. Um, Aiden, you you have a little bit to to add on this pension issue with uh, with BT? Yeah, I think, well, we had, um, it was a big topic here when we had the significant rates volatility, um, particularly in, in the sterling market. Um, and one of the biggest um, corporate pension um, deficits in, or, or certainly one of the biggest schemes in, in Europe um, is with BT, British Telecom. Um, and when the, the UK market was going through all the rate volatility at the beginning of October, um, they came out with a statement saying that the um, asset side of their balance of, of that of that deficit equation had been hit for 11 billion pounds um, before hedges um, by some of the the rate moves, um, and that the pension fund had been subject to margin calls um, to cover off some of the the derivative positions that they have where they try and hedge out that risk. And the hedges had done their job, um, so the, the net deficit was relatively unchanged, but it certainly created a lot of headlines uh, and a lot of chatter around uh, around that, that topic. And I think it's always uh, we always tend to focus a lot on the, the, the kind of discount rate movement side of things as, as credit spreads uh, change, but we sometimes forget about the asset side of the, the balance sheet and the derivatives hedging that, that these companies have that can cause volatility as well. So that was a that was kind of an interesting one that, that we published on. And do you uh, have others uh, on your radar screen that, that that you're worried about headline risk like that? Yeah, I think some of the, the, the other kind of bigger ones are some in the energy sector like BP, um, but uh, again, um, in theory, the hedges should be working on these things. It's, it's been more to do with the margin calls um, that, that some of these schemes have been um, subject to um, to meet the hedging of, of the, uh, the underlying rate risk um, and whether or not the schemes themselves have the liquidity to meet those margin calls because if they don't, um, then the companies themselves can potentially be on the hook for, for that liquidity. Great. Awesome stuff. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I really want to thank our best-in-class analysts for joining us. Thank you for listening to our BI Credit Chat podcast. If you need anything from our team, 
feel free to reach out directly or simply access the credit research dashboard at BI Cred. Stay happy and healthy. Until next month, may your longs be tighter and your shorts wider. Bye-bye.